Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. We were down on the ground. There were insurrectionists trying to come through the door. The Capitol Police were barricading the door to make sure they were out. There was screaming. There was yelling. Then at the door over by where I was, there was pounding, pounding, people screaming. It was police. There were people identifying themselves as police. But of course, we had no way of knowing if they truly were. After they confirmed that those individuals indeed were Capitol Police, they opened the door and hurried everyone out very quickly. I never had any similar experiences on the job at CIA, but certainly the the training prepares you for it. But I will say, Michael, one of the unbelievable things is that, you know, even though earlier in my career when I was at CIA, we prepared for these sorts of things, right? We went, ran through the scenario of what happens when there's an attack on the building you're in, when they come looking for high ranking right. or, you know, U.S. officials. Like, how do you respond to that? What do you do? How do you protect yourself? Um, the idea that the, the time in my life when I would actually come close to experiencing any of that would be at the United States Capitol, um, at the at the hands and direction of insurrectionists, Americans, fellow Americans, insurrectionists is, is absolutely um, the, the unthinkable. Abigail Spanberger is a member of Congress representing Virginia's 7th Congressional District. Representative Spanberger began her career in public service as a federal agent for the Postal Inspection Service. She then served as an operations officer with the Central Intelligence Agency. Abigail was elected to Congress in 2018 and re-elected this past November. Abigail joins us today to tell her story of the assault on the U.S. Capitol last week, the insurrection from the eyes of a member of Congress. We'll be right back with that conversation after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
It is an honor to have you with us on Intelligence Matters, Abigail. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor to be speaking with you. Uh, and I'm delighted to join your podcast, which I listen to whenever I get the chance. Thank you. We're going to talk in some detail, Abigail, about the insurrection at the Capitol last week. But I first want to give my listeners a sense, Abigail, for who you are and for your background. So let me start by saying for most of your professional life, you've been involved in public service. First as a federal agent for the Postal Inspection Service, then as a CIA operations officer, and now as a member of Congress. What drew you and what draws you to public service? Uh, So I always wanted to pursue a career in public service uh, because I I was following the example of my parents. My uh, father was a career federal law enforcement officer, and my mother was a nurse. And uh, growing up, my my father used to always say that there was no higher calling than service to our country. And so, you know, I didn't really ever conceptualize any other option other than public service. And um, I was particularly drawn to CIA because because it's a place where you get to answer unanswerable, seemingly unanswerable questions, and you get to help other people make really, really good decisions. Um, but, But growing up in my household... Uh, you know, that that was my my primary focus was serving our country and and ultimately now representing the community I grew up in. I get to serve my country and, and our community. And why politics? Why the move to politics and what drew you to that? <sighs> well, you know, as a I had left CIA in 2014 um, at that point in time, I had been thinking about what to do next and where to go next. As, as you well know, uh, it's a career that requires a, a lot of moves and uh and my daughter, who was five at the time, said, well, you know, when are we, we were talking about where we might go next with my career. And she said, well, what about Richmond? When are we going to move to Richmond? <laughs> so we explained to her, <laughs> with mommy's job, Richmond's not on the list. Uh, we, had, we had friends posted to Kenya at the time. And I remember saying, oh, well, remember, you know, Ruby has monkeys in her backyard. Doesn't that sound exciting? Um, and she apparently grandma is way, uh, well, both grandmothers actually are, are way more compelling than monkeys in the backyard. And so it really got me thinking about kind of long-term what it is that I, I wanted professionally and personally. And, you know, as I mentioned, my father's career in law enforcement that had uh, moved us around quite a bit when I was growing up until we settled in Virginia but my mother as a nurse had always been really focused on our local community. And so I, I decided at that time, somewhat uh, inspired by, um, or at least she got the wheels turning by my daughter mentioning, uh, you know, ultimately she said, everybody we love lives in Richmond. Why wouldn't we go there? And so, you know, I had settled down. I thought I was going to be a relatively kind of normal a suburban parent. I, I did get a job in the private sector and I started a Girl Scout troop. And I thought that would be the way that I would be engaged in my community. And I, began getting involved in various different forms of advocacy for issues that mattered um, a little bit less political than, than, you know, issue focus. Mm-hmm. Um, but after uh, the 2016 election and the kind of continued attacks on the intelligence community, on facts, on information, on truth, um, you know, having spent time in the intelligence community as a, as a case officer, um, writing up those intelligence reports and working with reports officers and analysts to make sure that people some other place who were making really hard and important decisions had the information they needed to make good decisions, um, recognizing that there seemed to be a willingness to depart from 
a desire to make good and informed decisions. Um, and, and my predecessor in this, off, in this office in my district was somewhat chief among them. Uh, I decided that I, uh, I would run because I wanted to be among those who were, uh, you know, endeavoring to make good, informed, fact-based uh, decisions. And so that's really what brought me to politics in, in the principle of it. And, um, and that's why I ran. And uh, it's, been a, it's been quite an adventure ever since. Okay, Abigail, let's talk about the insurrection at the Capitol. And maybe for the sake of a logical structure here, as I grew up being an analyst, as you know, let's break it down into before, during, and after. And with regard to the before, I'm wondering what kind of security guidance, warnings, et cetera, you might have received from the Capitol, Capitol Police in the days leading up to last Wednesday, right? D- did, you, did you get warnings? Did you get guidance? And what did it say? Uh, so the answer is no, not really. Um, we were aware that there was expected disturbances, um, but I, I would say that any of the preparations that came were really uh, member-driven. For, for an example, and, and my, my team knows I'm a little bit over the top, um, you know, I frequently have our office swept for bugs. I have every present the office receives, you know, run through machines to make sure there's no listening devices. It, they they um, somewhat joke about how I, I'm maybe a bit kooky about the security, <laughs> but I I had told uh, my team, and of course we're working with limited staff in the office anyway because of the pandemic. I had said any anyone who comes to the office, and really it should be as skeleton of a crew as possible should dress down, wear jeans, wear sweatpants. It should look like you are just, you know, walking back home from the gym or doing whatever. No one should have their badge out. If you keep your Metro card in your badge, make sure that they're separate. Um, And no one should know you're a Capitol Hill employee until you're actually walking through uh, the magnetometer uh, and presenting your ID to Capitol Police. Just so they wouldn't be targeted, right? They wouldn't be targeted, right? Because uh, to be clear, we knew that this event was happening on January 6th because January 6th is the day that we were um, finalizing and acknowledging the results of the November 2020 presidential election. And so, you know, that event, of course, was happening in the United States Capitol. And so um, out of an abundance of caution, which perhaps now in retrospect was uh, a fraction of what we needed, um, th- those were the steps that I asked my my personal team to wear and uh, to, to take. And, you know, I somewhat followed suit. I wore uh, uh, just a, a pair of slacks and a, a turtleneck and, and threw a a blazer on top, knowing that if I needed to get away, I could take off my bright colored blazer, which much to my absolute surprise, um, as we are crouching and taking cover in the house chamber, which we'll get to in the during portion, um, I ultimately did exactly that, take off my bright colored blazer so that um, I would be in all black as I was um, taking cover while uh, people were trying to break into the house chamber. Uh, So, you know, overall, there was from from on the receiving end of how threats were being communicated, uh, certainly not enough that was communicated to people um, in, in any way. It was, again, from my perception and the way it was communicated to us and to our teams, um, viewed as there was going to be a First Amendment uh, rally of sorts. There was expectation that there might be some overflow headed towards the Capitol. It was recommended that people use the tunnels and stay inside. Um, but re- really, that was the extent of the guidance that we re- that we received. So, Abigail, let's move to the during right the event itself. Can you walk us through what happened from 
the time you started the joint session of Congress just after noon, I think it was somewhere around one o'clock mm-hmm. until you returned to the session much later that night. Give us sort of the blow by blow. So be- because of the pandemic, um, the the way that we had set up the, the joint session of Congress was we had members of Congress uh, in the chamber in the gallery, which is the section up above that's typically open to the public uh, and members of Congress uh, seated on the actual floor, all in one big chamber. Um, and we had done that so that we could have some social distancing uh, apart. Um, there were also attempting to limit the number of House members and senators who joined. And so, you know, we made known what time of day we were going to be there. And so I was set to be there uh, at the beginning um, of the joint session, which began shortly after 1 p.m. And it began with the with the pomp and circumstance of what this event is supposed to be. You know, there's a parade of senators and clerks who come over from the United States Senate, uh, walking the long path across. And then they announce, I believe it's a Sergeant Sergeant at Arms who announces that they are there. Uh, They bring in these boxes, these big wooden boxes where there's certificates from all of the states, uh, providing the certified results of each state's election. And then one by one, there's a script to it. They are presented uh, and read out uh, in alphabetical order each state that um, a- announces their results, and the vice president receives those and can you know reads them out loud, uh, and we go through one by one. And so when we got to Arizona, uh, which is pretty pretty early, um, there was a challenge to the electoral results in uh, Arizona, and so one of the House members contested it. Uh, one of the senators, Senator Cruz, also contested it, and at that point in time. Uh, when there's a con- uh, when they've contested a response and a House member with the support of a senator both contest it, then we break into our individual houses um, to debate. And so at that point, the senators left, and it was House members who took up uh, and began the debate. And at that point, we had Speaker Pelosi was seated in the Speaker's chair presiding over the proceedings. And the debate was ongoing. Each person who was speaking had five minutes and it was set to be a two-hour debate uh, in five-minute increments. And so we were a couple people through that list. When there was a little bit of a commotion, uh, Capitol Police officers came in and quietly went up to uh, Chairman McGovern um, and then ultimately went up on the dais and you know quietly spoke to Speaker Pelosi. And she um, you know walked down and Chairman McGovern walked up and he took over in the Speaker's chair. And you know, she quickly left. Um, and it was very clear that they were escorting her out. Um, and then they escorted out Congressman Clyburn and Congressman uh, Hoyer, uh, of course, House leadership on our side, uh, on the Democratic side. And it, it was a little bit far for me. And I wasn't noticing when House leadership from the other side of the aisle was escorted out. So it was very clear that something was happening at that point in time. And um, from there, we uh, started looking at our phones and it was clear that the protests outside um, and the, the, at this point, still seemingly protests um, had just become really uh, were, were meet, reaching some level of a fever pitch. We got an alert that there was a potential bomb threat in one of the House office buildings. And so people were evacuated out of there. And then we started getting trickling in announcements that they were going past fenced off areas uh, that were fenced off, both in part because of the upcoming um, inauguration events, but also because of the uh, what were expected to be uh, uh, maybe on the rowdy side was the expectation uh, First Amendment event. And so then all of a sudden, 
it, things escalated very, very quickly. When there was an announcement made um, that people had entered the Capitol, we were locking down. Uh, there was a sort of a furious effort made by the door attendants and the Capitol police officers to lock all the doors. Uh, then there was another announcement made that uh, a chemical ir- irritant had been uh, sprayed. And so everyone needed to get out their gas masks and you know, they're kept under the seat. So um, it, it elevated and escalated really quickly. So we all got out our gas masks um, and uh, and prepared for the, uh, to potentially use those. And then we started to make our way to evacuate. Um, at the beginning, while a little bit tense, it was still kind of calm as people were trying to understand what was happening. Um, and then they were able uh, to lead the people who were in the uh, on the floor section. And so those would have been the members from the states that were being contested. So um, we had members representing the Arizona delegation who were down on the floor. And then most of us were up in the gallery uh, who weren't going to be debating. And then after what seemed like some time of calm, um, you know, <laughs> in a frenzied situation, uh, you know, we're checking on people who were, uh, you know, pretty concerned about what was happening. We're texting with our staff and with family members, uh, trying to make sure everybody's accounted for. And then it was, we need to get out. We need to get out now. And the what was supposed to be the egress point was on the opposite side of the gallery where we were. And each section of the gallery is blocked off by, I mean, there's there's rows of seating, movie theater style, but then there's also um, bars meant to keep people in their assigned gallery. So we're climbing under them, climbing over them uh, in order to try and get to the doors that we, um, at the time, were told we would be able to get out of. Um, as we were going um, around, there was kind of a frenzied call. Everybody put your gas mask on, put your gas mask on. Then there was a, a bit of a frenzied call. Okay, in fact, it's uh, whatever the irritant they've put out is not reaching this far. Take your gas mask off for those. There were people who were pretty um, upset, you know, making sure that people weren't going to risk hyperventilation. Right, then right. We get to the other, ultimately make it to the other side. Um, and that's when these insurrectionists had reached the Capitol floor, uh, the the chamber door. And so we are there and there are Capitol police officers on the floor um, barricading up the door to enter the house chamber with benches and tables and just standing as, as people on the other side are banging the door, breaking the glass in the door. The, the door is a mix of decorative metal and glass and wood breaking through that glass and they're screaming, there's yelling, Capitol police are screaming for everybody to get down. Um, You know, we're yelling for everybody to take their pins off. So, you know, members of Congress have rather notable uh, and discernible pins, make sure everybody has their pins off. Actually, that's a call that I had put out when we were still on the other side before we started the, the, the move around. Um, Then there was a, you know, a order to get everybody get down on the ground, flat on the ground. Abigail, why the, the, the need to take the pins off. Why did you see that as important? Well, uh, you know, my, my thought was if anybody, um, it, it, depending upon their intention, we don't know their intention, but you don't want to be readily identifiable. You know, if they're there to target people and not just property, you don't want to be identifiable as a member of Congress. And in fact, one of my colleagues, when there was first, uh, you know, before they had locked us down, she said, you know, I'm going to go back to my office. And I said, um, you know, take your pin off. And she said, what? I said, take your pin off. And, and she said, why should I take my pin off? I said, you take your pin off. And if anybody asks who you are, you tell them that you're a secretary. And, you know, to be clear, not that there's, um, you know, n- no hierarchy here, but if they're targeting someone, 
um, for effect, it would be members of Congress. And I said, you know, now, you know, if you're insisting on leaving, go. Um, and so she, you know, she took her pin off and, and uh, ultimately ended up barricaded in another room um, during the attack on the Capitol. Again, not knowing their intentions, but if they are trying to target members of Congress, it's it's a shiny little medal that, that tells exactly who we are. Um, and if you're from a, from a CT perspective, and, and certainly this was a, a terrorist attack, um, from my perspective, uh, an event waged for uh, political gain and meant to inspire fear um, that, that we shouldn't make ourselves readily available um, or readily identifiable. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Representative Spanberger. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. So, Abigail, the story, please keep keep going. Uh, so, at, at that point in time, we were down on the ground. Uh, there were insurrectionists trying to come through the door. The Capitol Police were barricading uh, the door to make sure they were out. There was screaming, there was yelling. Um, then at the door over by where I was, there was pounding, pounding, people screaming, it was police. Uh, so we, and you know, there's so much yelling. There were police officers uh, about 20 feet away. And so, you know, some of us called to them that there were people identifying themselves as police, but of course we had no way of knowing if they truly were. Um, and so, you know, after they confirmed that those individuals indeed were Capitol Police, uh, they opened the door um, and hurried everyone out very quickly as the Capitol Police officers um, at the front entrance door continued. Um, at some point in time, while all of this is happening, there was uh, a woman was shot, and, and there was there will be an investigation for the full details of that. But um, that was at one of the side entrances to the chamber where that um, uh, occurred. So you know we could hear that it was unclear um, at the time whether because there were other flashbangs sounding. Um, loud noises. Um, so it was uh, unclear if that was another flashbang or if that was an actual gunshot. Ultimately, we know it was a gunshot. But um, when police officers did come to this other door, uh, we were all able to get out through that door. Um, they ushered us quickly to the large uh, marble stairs in the Capitol. And as we're going there, we saw um, on the ground uh, insurrectionists prone down on the ground, Capitol Police detaining and subduing them um, as we rushed down a flight of steps and then into um, a, a back stairwell that is uh, um, it, not obscured from from public view. Certainly, um, you know, not not meant to be used typically, other than by uh, folks who really know their way around. So then we were in this tiny stairwell going down um, and, and ultimately into the tunnels of the Capitol. To, to get out of the Capitol building and over to uh, a room that had been secured in one of the other um, offices. So Abigail, when you guys were in the House chamber near the end there, as you were being moved out and you heard the gunshot, what was what was the mood in the room? What was your own mood? You know, did the adrenaline kick in? Were you frightened? Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, you know, my, my personal go-to in times of stress is a bit of humor. So I'm uh, you know, texting my husband while all this is happening. And he's saying, please be safe. He's giving me updates on what's happening. And, you know, I said, oh, you know, don't worry, my hair's already in a ponytail, which, uh, you know, 
is is our lingo for don't worry, I'm ready to fight. Um, and I, you know, made a, a couple kind of dark humor jokes about um, the what was happening. Um, uh, others were praying, others were crying, others were calling home. Um, so it was it was a pretty tense time. And I think some of the contributing factors were we could hear all of what was happening, and we were, uh, you know, very clearly seeing Capitol Police officers fending off people trying to break through a door, um, but we didn't know how large. Uh, the right. the people you know how large of a crowd a mob was on the other side of the door and certainly we didn't know their intention and so you know in in retrospect kind of thinking back to it you know it was really the ups and downs of not knowing um, what was happening what their intentions were um, and uh, you know trying to make sure that everyone was remaining calm that we could react in a way that would keep everybody safe. Um, but there were really just uh, pretty raw emotions in that scenario. There's a, a, a story I understand about some reporters who you assisted. Can you walk us through that? Uh, in uh, in the House chamber, there were reporters who were there uh, to report on what was supposed to be a momentous, but uh, you know, every four years routine event within the United States Capitol. Um, and typically they, they sit apart from members of Congress as they're reporting on things and taking notes and they have laptops and cameras, depending upon uh, what uh, media entity they're, they're with. Um, but by the time we had all been um, kind of hustled around to where we were going to be, you know, evacuating out of the, the chamber, uh, we were all pretty much mixed together. And so when I was evacuating out, I was surrounded by a couple reporters and, um, you know, notably when we left the chamber and we were running out towards the, the big marble stairs and we saw everyone proned out, um, these insurrectionists proned out on the floor with Capitol Police officers, you know, pointing their guns and trying to keep them subdued. <laughs> well, two of the women who were right there, uh, journalists, kind of slowed down a bit to take some photos. And you know, I said, come on. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's amazing because in that moment they were doing their job. Um, yeah. They were doing their job, which is to make sure that this part of our history is is known um, and ideally into the future, never forgotten. Um, and so we made our way down the big staircase, down the you know the little back staircase into the basement, hustled through these areas, um, and then ultimately uh, into the room where they were trying to bring all of us. And uh, this gentleman said, "You know, are you are you members?" Uh, you know, meaning members of Congress. And the one woman said, oh, no, we're with the press. And he said, no, the press can't come in here. So um, I, I did get, as has been reported, I did get a little argumentative um, with him about the fact that um, they had no place to go. And, you know, even other people who could go barricade themselves in an office, they they literally had no place to go. Um, and so another one of my colleagues, uh, Ruben Gallego, who was right there at the time, um, you know, he said, my office is just one floor up. And by the by that point, or it was nearby. Um, and by that point, we were um, uh, uh, away from the Capitol where the threat was. And so he uh, gave them uh, his his office for them to secure themselves in his office. So, um, you know, my, my gratitude for him for responding in, in that manner as well. But it was pretty astounding that these people had just been, you know, huddling on the ground with the rest of us and then um, in a moment where it was told that they, they couldn't go into this room in this area of the, of the building that was considered to be safe. So it really sounds to me, I don't want to embarrass you here, but it really sounds to me like your training as a case officer 
played a role here in how you dealt with this. Is is that uh, is that your sense too? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would say, and I would want to thank um, you know all my 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 uh, all the trainers at the farm for all the scenarios that they they put us through. You know, I, uh, the the types of scenarios where you you try to, and and I'm certainly not, I don't think you ever really do. You try to get accustomed to loud noises. You try to get accustomed to what is it, what does pandemonium sound like? What's the most kind of productive way to respond to it? Um, You know, I I never um, had any similar experiences on the job at CIA, but certainly the the training prepares you for it. Um, But I will say, Michael, one of the uh, unbelievable things is that, you know, even though earlier in my career, when I was at CIA, we prepared for these sorts of things, right? We went, ran through this scenario, what happens when there's an attack on the building you're in, when they come looking for high ranking right. or, you know, US officials, like how do you respond to that? What do you do? How do you protect yourself? Um, <laughs> the idea that the, the time in my life when I would actually come close to experiencing any of that would be at the United States Capitol, um, at the at the hands and direction of insurrectionists, Americans, fellow Americans, insurrectionists is is absolutely um, the the unthinkable, un, unbelievable thing. But I did have um, quite a few conversations with a, a couple of my um, CIA training classmates about uh, about the day, and uh, you know, just <laughs> reflecting on some of the experiences and some of the the, the training that we went through and. Um, you know, again, with a little bit of dark humor about, um, you know, how, how I was, um, you know, at least mentally preparing to respond if people did uh, present themselves directly in front of me. So, Abigail, I want to move to sort of the aftermath and I sort of have a series of questions here that I'd like to ask you. And the first is with regard to the performance of the Capitol Police. Yeah. Thinking of, thinking about both the the planning for what was likely to happen, what happened uh, as it was playing out, those members of the Capitol Police, perhaps small, who who might have been helping in some way. Can you talk about, from your perspective, the performance of the Capitol Police here? You know, and I'll, I'll, I'll bucket it, right? And at this point, we know that at least one Capitol Police officer, um, at the, at the, as of the time that, that we're having this discussion, Michael, um, officer Brian Sicknick has died as a result of the injuries that he incurred trying to protect uh, the people inside the Capitol. Um, and, and so my, I send my heartfelt condolences to his family for their loss and, and my gratitude for his 12 years of service to the Capitol Police. Um, I think it, as, as we spoke about at the very beginning, I, I don't think that, again, from my perspective of, you know, always trying to plan for the worst and contingency planning and you know, imagining and planning for the unimaginable. Um, the preparations were made to ensure that when we were outside the Capitol compound, people were aware that it could be rowdy or people were aware that there could be problems. Um, and so, you know, there were fences put up to make sure that the whatever those crowds were didn't get too close to the Capitol. And so we could go about our business. Um, so I think there was a, a failure to imagine that it mm-hmm. could get as bad as it did, um, which is a failure in and of itself, because regardless of whether or not you can mentally conceive of other Americans um, participating in an insurrectionist attack, terrorizing the Capitol and, and all who are in it, 
um, you know, we should always perceive and recognize the fact that this building is a target um, and is a target by those who would do harm to the United States. Um, you know, the part that might be inconceivable is that they would be fellow Americans, but we certainly know that the United States Capitol has been a target in the past right. Right. and certainly was on 9-11. Um, so I, I think there was a failure to plan for the fact that, you know, the insurrectionists that day might try and charge the Capitol or frankly, that others um, who would use cover, the cover of, of this rally uh, to try and do so uh, would. And in the end, it was, you know, the rally participants, the, the mob uh, in the, that made their way and broke into the Capitol. Um, and, and then there was a breakdown of communication. There was mass confusion, you know, among the things that was, were notable to me is there was no accounting of who was who and where people were. Um, you know, there was nobody keeping a roster of, you know, where different members of Congress were and where they were holed up. There was no accounting of where our, you know, I, of course, I confirmed where my staff was, but, um, you know, staff members or members of the media, anyone who was in the building to confirm that, that they were safe and that they were accounted for. None of that happened. Um, and, and I think that that's a, a, an absolute failure, particularly when we were witnessing uh, the mob demonstrating violence. Um, evidently erecting a, a gallow on the, you know, the lawn of the Capitol. Um, and so once, once we saw how bad it was getting, the fact that um, the, the protocols didn't include uh, accounting for, for everyone who should have been in that building. And, you know, notably the, the number was far, far reduced because again, because of the pandemic, um, everyone has been really, um, you know, working with just a skeleton crew, one or two staff members in the office at any given time. Um, so that that was a, a major, major failure. And then the the time that it took to call in the National Guard, the D.C. National Guard, um, the, uh, you know, a, a, according to uh, what we know, that the fact that the president refused to authorize the National Guard, um, you know, which is consistent, frankly, with the fact that he had spent the morning provoking the attack on the United States Capitol. Um, you know, all of these things are, are failures. But I think the, the biggest failure of leadership is, of course, that of the president who um, would organize a rally and an event meant to disgrace or distract from uh, the path towards a peaceful transition of power. Um, you know, that was the that, that was the intention from the beginning, which in and of itself is uh, is terrible. But then to go beyond that and provoke violence and and continue to traffic in conspiracy theories uh, to the point where multiple people died, including um, Officer Sicknick is, is to me, uh, the, the largest failure of, of leadership of them all. So, Abigail, in terms of President Trump here, and I want to ask about accountability, you know, for those responsible for the attack, the attackers themselves, uh, those who directly incited it with their speeches, including the president, yep. and those in, those in politics and the media, right, who for weeks spread the dried tinder for the attack with the fake news about the election. How do you think about, we should think about accountability here? You know, I, I think that we need to view accountability in terms of what its purpose is. Accountability is holding people accountable, which is part of it, but also ensuring that there is a clear accounting of what happened, how it happened, uh, so that we can ensure it doesn't happen again. Uh, Michael, certainly from your background, you know that generally speaking, when there's a coup attempt, if it's unsuccessful, there may be others um, so it is incredibly important that we call the insurre insurrectionist attacks on the United States Capitol at a time when a joint session of Congress was certifying an election exactly what it was, which is a real attempt to undermine our democracy. 
that it was set forth right. by the president of the United States or provoked by the president of the United States um, and supported by the violent and angry and uh, uh, lie-filled rhetoric of many of my colleagues in the House and in the Senate. Um, and we must make note of that because it is important to recognize how these things occur. It didn't happen in a day. It happened um, over weeks and weeks when we saw people begin to accept and push conspiracy theories, push conspiracy theories that state after state said, no, this is wrong. We certify our elections. There was no fraud. What they're saying is incorrect. And you know, notably, because it is in a partisan context, um, Republican governors, Republican legislator, legislatures uh, were certifying elections in states, and yet um, people for political purposes. Uh, and I, you know, I heard it from some of my colleagues. Well, you, the base is really upset about this. Well, you have a responsibility as an elected leader to tell your voters whether you know they supported you or not but particularly those who support you um when they are so wrong about something you have the, the responsibility to tell them the truth and the truth however much they dislike it is that their preferred presidential candidate didn't win um and so i, I really applaud the comments that senator romney's put out where he was talking about just that that it's their responsibility to tell people the truth um but the accounting of where people stood uh how people participated in getting us to the point where this tinderbox was ready to explode is important to acknowledge and understand so that we can avoid it in the future. Um, and we need a, a, a full accounting now of who stands where um, as it relates to responsibility, acknowledging these un inconce previously inconceivable chain of events um, so that we can ensure that our oldest democracy in the world, our democratic republic, um, can survive uh, and, and ultimately grow from this and, and ideally be stronger into the future. But if we don't do that, then uh, we, frankly, we, we really risk everything. And I also wanted to ask Abigail about this as a sign of how deep our problems are. I, I received dozens and dozens of emails from currently serving and former foreign government officials. And there was a common theme in these emails and it was, Michael, the divisions in your country are deeper than we thought, and we thought they were pretty deep. Mm -hmm. What's your reaction to that? Yeah. It is a sad, sad time for us, right? We are supposed to be the shining city on the hill. We are supposed to be the, the we, we are the country who, who advocate for strengthening of democracies, for the rights of people, for um, you know the democratic values that we've seen trampled on, um, it's it's how can we lead the world when we are in such disarray? It is a deeply, deeply concerning and and I would argue humiliating time. Um, I, I have heard the same from colleagues, uh, you know, former agency colleagues, and then uh, friends I made along the way overseas who are just so sad. For, for where we are. Um, and I, I, you know, have seen some of the articles that have been put out. I believe it was the Kenyan press who ran an article entitled, who's the banana Republic now? I mean, yeah. and it's a picture of an insurrectionist with the American flag taken down, um, seated in speaker Pelosi's chair with his feet up on the table, right? It's, it's just a shameful state of affairs. And, and any American who believes in the strength uh, and, and, and purpose of our great nation 
should want to denounce what we saw on the 6th um, and ensure that we are working to re- rebuild and, and, and strengthen, frankly, the weaknesses that we have now viewed within our systems. Yeah. Abigail, you've been you've been fantastic with your time. I just want to ask you one more question, and that's whether we will see you at some point on the Intelligence Committee. I know the political benefits of that are not great, but you could do a great service to your country there. So will we see you there at some point is the question. At some point, I would love to be able to uh, to bring my, my perspective to the Intelligence Committee. Um, I don't know if it will be this Congress or future Congresses. Um, you know, it's the value... And the work that the intelligence community does to keep Americans, you know, uh, certainly across our country uh, and the United States within the world safe uh, is something that the more the American people don't know about it, that's because uh, the intelligence community is getting it right. Um, And it's 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 their work that makes it so that we uh, can all sleep at night, um, at least most nights. This week's been a little bit harder. Um, and so I, I would love to bring that perspective to the Intelligence Committee within the House uh, to ensure that uh, you know, my, my colleagues understand what it's like to be uh, or, or that I can bring some of that perspective about what it's like to be uh, one of those people out collecting the information and you know, do, doing the work. But I'm I'm grateful to all those who continue to serve and uh, and I'm appreciative of their efforts Um all of which, again, when when they're keeping us safe, go wholly unnoticed and, and unknown. Right. Abigail, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It is an honor to join you. I'm I'm really grateful uh, for for all of your lifetime of service, and and it's a pleasure to join you today. That was Abigail Spanberger. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.